2: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. Your host for this episode will be Benjamin Markovitz, who once wrote in the LRB that he grew up in Texas with two obsessions, basketball and romantic verse. He's talking about the first of those obsessions today with his guests, Ben Cohen and Kevin Arnovitz, ahead of the NBA finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics, which begin on the 2nd of June. You're listening to the first annual LRB NBA Playoff Podcast, where LRB, of course, stands for London Review of Basketball. I'm Ben Markovitz. My main qualification for hosting today is that I once got dunked on by Dirk Nowitzki about 25 years ago, a story that I've been trying to dine out on ever since, except that none of the people I go to dinner parties with know who Dirk Nowitzki is or what it means to be dunked on. To rectify that and talk about what's going on in the NBA right now, and why it should be interesting, even for people who aren't interested in basketball. I'm very excited to bring on two of the NBA insiders whose writing has helped get me through the pandemic, Ben Cohen, a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Welcome, Ben. Hi. How thanks you doing? for having me. I'm good. Who among us hasn't been dunked down by Dirk Nowitzki? Exactly. That's... And Kevin Arnovitz, the renaissance man of basketball journalism, TV script, writer, food, pod, co-host, LRB subscriber, and regular at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, who has been covering the NBA for ESPN since, I think, 2008. Welcome, Kevin.
0: Is it breakfast time where you are? It is breakfast time, unless you're intermittently fasting, in which case it's just fasting time.
2: Uh, So let's, I'm going to start with a softball question. Does this job feel like a job to you, or do you feel like you're in some kind of platonic high school world where you get to watch basketball with buddies and argue about box scores?
0: I think you're remiss if you don't every couple of weeks remind yourself that it is a job coveted by millions. And to me, it's an expression of ingratitude not to to do that every once in a while. I think more than anything, it's not so much – there are moments of great absurdity. I remember kind of sitting at a Chicago Bulls game a few years ago. um, I'm a bald man. So um, one of the gags that the Bulls mascot – so you have this grown man in a big red furry bull costume um, kind of running around a a very loud arena. And one of the things he'll do is kind of go on press row and sort of towel off and shine the the head of a a bald sports writer. And I was that guy that night. And then you just realize that, yes, the – you know the undergraduate degrees, the advanced degrees, the everything else. That this is my life. That I I get paid for a living to sit in a very loud sports arena and have my bald head polished by a man running around in a in a in a bull's costume. And there are the kind of these great moments of recognition. Yeah. That
2: does not sound like a pl- platonic high school existence to me, but maybe some form of high school existence.
0: <laughs> so, um, it, it's it's a wonderfully absurd existence. Ben, you've referred to the NBA industrial complex, and that can get a little overwhelming at times um, because it is a business like any other, and, and they make widgets. It's just the widgets happen to be basketball games. And so there, there are times of truly prosaic, annoyingly. And, and dealing with famous people can be, I think, quite annoying at times. And, and there are times where you were begging a 20 year old for five minutes of his time. And, and, you know, there's a certain indignity that comes with that, but not enough, I think, to be disenchanted with the job overall.
1: I think the real privilege of the job, especially um, the way that Kevin and I try to do it, is that you have an obligation to find something interesting and um, novel and unique to say about something that millions of people around the world are watching. And you have, you know, access to the inner sanctum of NBA teams for the most part. You can get interesting people to explain their interesting strategies to you when you're doing the job well. And you have a front row seat to just some of the most remarkable performers anywhere on the planet. You know, there there are times when it does feel like a job. It's, you know, when it's 3 a.m. and you're sort of banging your head against the keyboard trying to find that thing to say. And then you also are on the court and you get to watch Steph Curry warm up and have this sort of mesmerizing experience of seeing something that nobody else um, is. And you're sort of reminded in those moments that uh, it's what makes it all worth it. It's it's actually
0: funny you mentioned that because the moment of reference for me when I feel grateful, and I've been on the Golden State Warriors for the last month, um, is sitting courtside an hour and a half before game time when Steph Curry is going through his warm up routines. like, uh, And you get to sit right there. I mean, you get to sit courtside and where a fan would um, when he is behind the three-point line so you could literally and you shouldn't ever reach out and touch him during his warm-up routine but if you wanted to you could you'd get ejected from the premises but um, but to me Ben is exactly right like the 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 Steph Curry warm-up routine um, is is to me the moment of kind of maximum enlightenment
1: Yeah. I remember a few years ago, um, I wrote a story about this phenomenon of people coming to games early to watch Steph Curry warm up, which, you know, just never happened before in basketball. And it really took off in that 15-16 season when he was the unanimous most valuable player in the NBA. They set the record for wins. They became this cultural phenomenon. They started the season with a 24-0 record, and it was all Warriors all the time, everywhere you looked. And I remember I asked um, a guy named Bruce Fraser, the coach known as Q, who is basically the Steph Curry whisperer on the Warrior staff, and also happens to be Steve Kerr's best friend. And I asked him about, you know, he's probably passed the ball to Steph Curry more than anybody on earth. He is his he like he is the guy who gets Steph Curry assists in warmups. And I asked him about, you know, this strange phenomenon of hundreds of people coming to a game hours early to watch Steph Curry warm up. And he basically said, if I, if I weren't on the court, I would be doing the same thing if I were a fan. Like, how could you not? If you have that opportunity, it's the coolest thing you can see in sports. And I've tried to remember that since then. Let's, I want to come back to Steph Curry,
2: because I think there's a lot to be said about him in different contexts. One of the things that you just mentioned to me was that you're starting a, a column on success and failure. And I think one of the things that makes basketball so compelling is that it's a kind of controlled experiment about how stuff happens to people, who gets to win and who gets to lose. There's this wonderful Larkin phrase, you know, Philip Larkin being the great British basketball poet, <laughs> about the dread that how we live measures our own nature, the dread that how we live measures our own nature. And at the moment, it seems to me, this is a particular, particularly exciting time for that kind of measurement in basketball because there's just so much more measurement going on. And as an outsider to it all, one of the things that strikes me listening to you guys talk and also reading what you write is that the line between commentator and participant in the sport seems to have blurred a little since I was a kid, partly because of the analytics, meaning that some of the nerds have insights into what's going on that the players and the coaches also
1: want access to. Does that seem true to you or have I I gotten it wrong? I think it is more true today than it was a decade or two decades ago. I do think there is a divide between um the players and the quants. I think there there are certainly players whose games have been shaped and molded by data and numbers and things that they wouldn't have known when they were kids or if they happened to be playing, you know, 20 years ago. But but there th- that line still exists, but I do think it has been blurred. But but I think you're right generally about, you know, the controlled experiment of every basketball game, not just in terms of you know, neatly quantifying performance at work. I mean, these are these are employees who, um, you know, <laughs> how they perform at work is not only delineated into like very specific metrics and statistics, those numbers are available to everybody in the world. So they, they have performance reviews on a nightly basis. The other odd thing about sports, in my opinion, anyway, is that there is radical pay transparency in a way that there is in very few industries like you could with a click of a button you could know exactly how much money every player in the NBA makes and uh, to a large extent I think how good an NBA player is is not simply a reflection of what he does on the court it's how much he gets paid to do his job it's like you want to get value out of every position on a roster and the fact that you happen to know exactly what that value is, makes sports this sort of weird and, and wonderful topic to cover.
2: So talk us quickly through the salary cap, because that is different from what happens in English sporting leagues. And that puts the pressure on all these decisions about who gets to play and how much they get to play and how much they get paid that you don't really have an equivalent for in this country. So how does the salary cap work and how does it affect those decisions?
1: Yeah, so the weird thing about basketball is that, you know, baseball in America has become synonymous with finding value in part because of the Moneyball A's. Um, in basketball, every team is essentially handed the same pile of cash to spend however they want. They can. There's a salary cap. They can go over it in certain um uh, cases and with weird exceptions that you know you sort of need this Talmudic understanding of the salary cap to kind of uh, to kind of get. But you know it does put the pressure on teams to get value up and down the roster, especially when um, they are devoting a huge chunk of that salary cap. you know in some cases 60 to 70 percent of what they spend in a given year on two or three players and then need to find you know nine or ten players to fill out. The roster. So, you know, you can get value from your guys making maximum salaries, like LeBron James. He makes the same amount as other players in the league, which Is crazy to anybody who has seen LeBron James play uh, like a free market in a free market that would never happen. The way um, it you know it doesn't happen in soccer, but you can also get value out of guys making minimum contracts because they far exceed you know what they are paid in terms of their performance. But you know, but Kevin knows the salary cap much better than I do, and the intricacies and how teams exploit it, and I think probably has a better understanding of that. I think that's the area where the common fan. Probably even more than the on-court
0: analytics, which which I think actually is a battle that's been won and already absorbed. I mean, that's the thing. I was I was sitting with Jared Dudley, who is a, a longtime pro who just retired and went immediately uh, to become a bench assistant for the Dallas Mavericks, uh, who are still playing in, in the in the conference uh, finals as a recording and what's fascinating is it was generally portrayed as a divide, right? You had these sort of, you had these MIT and Stanford grads upstairs in the front office who were putting these demands on the athletes and the coaches to play different ways than would be not intuitive for them, right? No, no, you need to shoot from there, not for there. I know you want to just take a mid range jumper, but you need to, you know, whatever the cliches are. And actually I think that battle has largely been won. And I don't think you have to do anything other than watch the games um, ironically, to to sort of see that that players have bought in. And they not only buy in because, not not even by imperative, but more just financial incentive. I mean, I, I think there are players who are defensive specialists who realize if I can shoot 41% from behind the three-point line, I'm going to get paid a lot of money. But talking with Dudley, who, you know, again, would be the former player tribe, you would think would be somebody who might be allergic to analytics. And he was telling me how much he's fallen in love with his computer this year, that this is his favorite thing. Because I, I think, by and large, the basketball was the instrument that it was, it was always in your hand as a player. You went out, you spent an hour on the court doing shots or going through choreography of the defense. And now he's just a coach who has to kind of stay busy with his computer. And he's a, he's a pretty just mentally hyperactive guy. And, and so now sort of cutting the fine lines between this player I'm advising, is he better on the right side of the floor or the left side of the floor? And he was sort of explaining to me, and I don't think telling me because he felt that I need to know. I've I've known Jared for a long time. But just listening to him, if I had put sort of a, a, a front office, the first front office analytics guys from 15, 20 years ago in a time machine and transported them to the present moment, and they had heard former recently retired player now coach sort of singing the praises of shot location and well you don't need to close out and defend on a a guy shooting the ball from that side of the floor because he's not good from that side of the floor i mean all the stuff that was prescribed and frankly early on dismissed as being either arcane or or the the product of the imagination of a dork who's never played the game or now you know are are running rampant in the Dallas Mavericks practice court between a former player and a current player. So I think that's kind of, that war has been fought and already retired. I think the, the understanding of the salary cap, the fans on, on, on social media saying what a stupid contract that is. They should have put the poison pill so that they could then trade the guy, whatever it, 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 that to me is actually the, the sort of the manipulation of the cap and your, your favorite team's budgeting Tactics to me is much more. I, I think the current the current trend in terms of this sort of proliferation of information in, in the, the common fan or the analyst or the the, the amateur analyst.
2: So what I'm going to dig a little deeper quickly to make it more comprehensible about this quant player divide. And I've been trying to think of a story that would make it clear to a, a, a listener. 3 and D guys are big in the NBA right now, right? That a 3 and D guy is somebody who can play defense across several positions so that you can switch and they can hit three-pointers even if they don't have a lot of other offensive skills. If you're a 37% three-point shooter, that means you're somebody people have to mark, they have to guard, right? Because you don't want to give up 37% shots. If you're a 32% shooter, that means you're not somebody anybody has to worry about. And obviously the difference between 37% shooter and the 32% shooter is five shots in 100, or one in 20. And if you take four shots a game, that means the difference between these two shooters appears in one out of five games. And in the other four games, they're identical. And obviously, that difference is not one that you immediately become aware of if you're playing pickup basketball with people. If you're playing pickup, you look at how quick the first step is and how high they can get on the rim, and do you have to worry about their head fakes and things like that? But the quants mean, you know, the quantitative analysis of the game means that suddenly that distinction between the 37% shooter and the 32% shooter is hugely significant.
0: I, it's it's actually, this is something I think about constantly. One of my favorite 80s movies is Bull Durham, um, a romantic comedy about baseball, actually, featuring uh, Kevin Costner. There's this wonderful monologue in the third act where this Costner is the thinking man's uh, minor league baseball player. He's probably the, one of the smartest guys in the game is is versed in the literature of Susan Sontag for God's sakes we're, we're told uh, in the movie and and he has this and he has been even though his career is pretty much up he's never gonna make the major leagues he's become very useful as sort of a a, 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 a star whisper to 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 sort of they, they bring him in to sort of condition dumb young pitchers with great amounts of talent on the art of becoming a pro and he then kind of he, he's he's preaching in this bar three scotches in about do you know what the difference between a 250 hitter and a 300 hitter is you know one hit a week one dying quail a week one one blooper a week and he's like that's the difference between kind of standing in this bar ranting and playing in yankee stadium and yet it's completely undetectable to the human eye i think about this all the time like why is it when i watch a 40 percent three-point shooter they never miss and yet a 30 percent three-point shooter always misses they're terrible and it's one out of 10 shots which isn't even your one out of 20 which again that means in a Two games over a course of a a Tuesday, Friday. We're talking about one different outcome out of one shot if they shoot shoot five attempts. I'm totally with you on this, and yet I'm absolutely certain, and I think all of us can say here: I know the difference between a 30% shooter and a 40% shooter from three. It's mysticism.
2: Do you remember the different the, the little Twitter storm there was about Carmelo Anthony and Cal Corver a few years ago? where some people had said Kyle Korver was a better player than Carmelo Anthony. And the, the argument became the poster child for that exact divide, because Carmelo could obviously do lots of things that Kyle could not do. But Kyle had those numbers.
1: He had that seeing-eye ground ball that hit, you know, that hit the gap. But we should also mention this is not an academic exercise. There is a real-world example of what happens when you go from a 30% shooter to a 40% shooter. So the Dallas Mavericks this year have a guy named Dorian Finney-Smith. Dorian Finney-Smith was undrafted out of college. After his first 500 three-pointers in the NBA, he made 30% of them. He was the prototypical 30% three-point shooter. And what he understood about himself as one of the league's premier defensive stoppers, this um, versatile wing player um, who suddenly found that there was a premium on his talents on the defensive side of the ball, given the way that basketball is played today— in order for him to stick in the league and to make a whole lot of money, he was going to have to become a better three-point shooter. And so uh, you know, very slowly, uh, but surely over time, he did improve as a three-point shooter. Um, he went uh, from a 30% shooter to a 37% shooter to a 38% shooter to a 39% shooter this year. He, he went from being undrafted to uh, signing a three-year deal worth $12 million to renegotiating that deal this year. He is now on a $55 million contract. So he went from not being wanted by any NBA team going undrafted to signing a $55 million deal with the Dallas Mavericks, which now looks like a bargain. If he hit free agency this summer, he would almost assuredly um, make probably closer like to 70 to $90 million. That is the value of being able to make 39% of your three-point shots if you also happen to be excellent at defense. So that's that's what
2: the 9% has gotten him that contract.
1: Yeah. What the, what sounds what sounds marginal is actually a massive difference. It is worth tens of millions of dollars. So can I ask you both
2: a pet obsession question that I have which may be interesting to no other human being on the planet. One of the things that strikes me about the Steph Curry warm-up warm and I've watched I have not seen him warm up but I've seen the YouTube video where he makes 93 out of 100 three-pointers. And one of the questions I have about all these sharpshooting shooting players in the NBA. Is there an exact correlation between their shooting percentage in a kind of platonic practice situation and what it is reduced to when they're playing in the game? Or are there guys, I sometimes, I always think of Kyle Lowry maybe as as being that kind of guy who will make 60% of his shots in an empty gym and 40% in the game. Or is it always more or less the Steph Curry uh, constant that you reduce by half?
1: Well, I'll defer to Kevin on Kyle Lowry because he is the world's leading expert on Kyle Lowry, I think. However, um, the two things I will say is that if there is a correlation, um, the chances are that NBA teams would be able to calculate it at this point because um, in addition to knowing everything that happens in a game, they also have cameras and technological systems that track everything that happens in a practice gym. Um, So they would be able to know... like the exact percentage that Steph Curry shoots in an empty gym over the last 10 years of his career over hundreds of thousands of shots. The other thing I will say is that Steph Curry is probably a tough guy to calculate this percentage with because having seen him shoot in an empty gym, I mean, that guy probably shoots 98% from three with nobody guarding him in an empty gym during practice. It is you walk the other, the other thing you notice um, uh, sitting courtside during warmups is that even the guys who can't shoot in the NBA, you know, probably shoot between seventy and one hundred percent in uh, warm-ups on threes. Guys who not only can't shoot but don't shoot and would never be cleared to shoot. There, there are a few of those guys left, but you watch them shoot three pointers, and you would think that like they are some of the best shooters on the planet. It is, it is quite uncanny. Yeah, that was sort of the thing with Dwight Howard. You know, longtime center who
0: had no license to shoot outside of basically four, five, six feet for for the most of his career. Um, you started hearing, kind of, from practice, like, "Oh, yeah, he hit ten in a row from three today." Um, and again, a guy who's only given that license in very rare circumstances, especially now at the end of his career. But, but to 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 Ben's point, just again, these guys are incredibly good shooters with no one guarding them in perfect conditions. Uh, which, in and of itself, and I say that I say that with great admiration. It's 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 a really hard exercise getting that ball in that hoop.
2: You don't know of the player who is the 40% shooter who's actually not that great in practice. That guy doesn't exist so far as you know.
0: I I don't know that such a creature exists.
2: The reason I care about it is because it it seems like a classic, um, um, what do I want to say? It's the difference between our intentions and who we turn out to be in reality seems measurable by that gap between how we shoot in practice and how we shoot in the game. And that's why I care about it, because that gap is one that matters a lot to me.
1: I will say on the flip side, there are guys who shot way better in practice before their performance in the games caught up. And Dorian Finney-Smith, um, the guy who you know is suddenly worth fifty-five million dollars on the Mavericks, was one of them. He was. Such a better shooter in practice than in games that, um, you know, Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks owner and their coaches and executives had to urge him to keep shooting because they knew the numbers were there. The data suggested that he was a much better shooter than anybody's eyes could see. And suddenly reality, you know, caught up to what was happening in practice. You know, 10 years earlier, if you were not tracking every shot in practice, I don't know if they would have had the conviction to keep encouraging him to, 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 uh, to launch from behind the line. So let's, let's step, step back a minute quickly. And you
2: mentioned Moneyball, which I think came out in 2003, and tracked the quant evolution in baseball. And I think the, the core insights in Moneyball, so far as I can remember, it had to do with the walk. A walk is what happens in baseball if the pitcher or bowler, if you want to call them that, throws four bad pitches that don't hit the target. And if you don't swing at those pitches, you get to walk to first base. It's like rounders, and you get to go home afterwards and you score a run. And the the two big insights I think of Moneyball were on the one hand that throwing walks was not just a function of bad pitching, but it was a function of good hitting. It was the same hitters who kept on getting walked to first base. And the second big insight was that walks were worth much more than standard baseball people had ever suspected, because the most important thing you can do when you get to the plate is not get out. So that's that's baseball, that's two thousand three. And on some level it doesn't seem that interesting to me because All the actions in baseball are discrete. Somebody throws, somebody hits, somebody runs, the play is over. You have a measurable outcome. The measurable outcome affects in quantifiable ways your likelihood of winning, and then you do the whole thing again. Basketball is dynamic. It's 10 guys running around like crazy. They all affect each other in hard-to-comprehend ways. So, Ben, maybe I'll start with you because you sort of wrote a book about this. What was the big equivalent insight in NBA analytics, the equivalent to the walk
1: insight? It was the three-point shot. I mean, if we step back and we think about um, Moneyball as an example of finding and exploiting the inefficiencies in a deeply inefficient marketplace, that is what some of the best and most successful NBA teams have done over the past decade, um, which is taking more three-pointers than anyone thought possible. So the three-point shot was introduced to the NBA in 1980. You would think that teams and players would have been smart to pick up on the fact that it was worth 50% more than two-point shots. In fact, it was in the name of the shot, right? Three-pointers. They are worth more than two-pointers. And yet, that first season, uh, when it was in the NBA 1980, I think about 2% of shots were threes. That number would slowly climb um, over the ensuing decades. And around 2008, it seemed as if the sport had found its equilibrium, about 22% of shots That year and for the next five years would be three pointers. So 2008 to 2012, 22%, almost like the exact percentage of shots came from behind the line. And then something happened over the last decade that would sort of blow that assumption to bits. And now I think that the league's three-point rate hovers around 40%. So teams are taking twice as many three-pointers as they did a decade ago. They have set the record for more three-point most they have set the record for most three-pointers in a season. I think 8 or 9 years in a row at this point. And, you know, the best teams and the most efficient offenses, you know, are tend to be the ones that take the most three pointers. And so that is the insight that has fundamentally changed the game. It has warped the geometry of the court. It has changed how players are valued and how teams are built.
2: Why did it take the league so long?
1: I, it's it's one of the great mysteries of the sport. I mean, I think Kevin might be able to speak to it a little bit better. I mean, th- there are always going to be generational differences. So if you think about guys who were in the league in the 80s and 90s, they didn't grow up with a three-point line. So suddenly there's this thin strip of paint on the court that wasn't there before. And so guys who came of age shooting, you know, 18 to 24 feet away from the basket, suddenly had this incentive to shoot, you know, from 23 and um and 23 feet 9 inches away from the basket, but since they had never grown up doing that, it was hard for them to take advantage right away because for the entire history of basketball until that moment, closer to the basket had always been better, right? You want the shots that are more efficient, but this line changed the math on the court. So you have guys then trickle into the league in the 90s and 2000s who have grown up with a three-point line, and it's not unusual for them to take those shots. Then Steph Curry comes along you know, in the late 2000s, um, and especially between 2012 and 2016. And you know we are seeing the effects of his presence now, where it is no longer unusual for kids to grow up shooting 30 to 40 feet away from the basket. Shots that in another era, would have earned them a permanent place on the bench. Are now being rewarded, and that has just profound consequences for the way basketball is played around the world. And um, it is like the single, you know, most powerful force driving the game's evolution. Yeah. I, I think there were certain there there were certain platitudes I
0: think that prevailed. For instance, uh, this focus on shot creation. So, so you would have a guy like you mentioned, Kyle Korver, earlier, right? One of the great shooters of all times, but can he get his own shot? Oh, that's great that Kyle can shoot a three, but you know, you can't handle the ball and he can shoot a three. You gotta run him around three or four screens, whereas Carmelo, you, you put the ball in his hands and he might not be able to get a three pointer, but he can get a shot. And I think when I first started covering their league, I think in 08 and 09 I just remember sort of, you know, I would ask questions like, Well, why does that guy not get more time? He does have a forty percent success rate from three-pointer it's like yeah but he doesn't know how to create the shot himself right he can't just dribble into a three-pointer you have to sort of cultivate this entire system of choreography to get Kyle Korver a shot Um, and I think there was a certain point where it took teams a while to realize yes that's true it might be worth it it is a lot of effort there's a lot of sort of elbow grease that has to be employed to sort of get that guy a shot, but it's probably worth it rather than just playing this one-on-one bully ball. Um, I think the other thing beyond the three-point shooter, and it's still—and there was this great Michael Lewis piece that is frequently referenced from uh, the New York Times, uh, I believe in 2009, about uh, Shane Batty and Daryl Morey, who at the time was sort of the leading analytics executive, uh, analytics-focused executive. really the only ones kind of leading a team at that time in the league about sort of the ineffable quality that certain players have to affect winning and for whatever reason we don't know why but when they're on the floor the team just plays better Kyle Lowry has historically been one of these guys I mean I've always been fascinated with Lowry because he's this little fire plug of a player who's not much taller than six feet does not have a physique that looks like it belongs in professional basketball isn't terribly athletic And doesn't always put up great stats historically, even during his prime, but for whatever reason, he was one of these guys that you didn't know. You just didn't know, but there was something gravitational or even mystical or or some some non-tangible factor that enabled him just to create winning basketball plays and you could see them sometimes like he's a guy who's expert at standing and planting his feet against a driving player and and inducing that player to commit an offensive foul but that's a couple times a game And, and I think that's still that's still where we are and Shane Battier in that piece that Lewis says was the classic player again a guy who didn't have any great transcendent athletic talent but for whatever reason, made winning plays, and when he was on the floor, the Rockets were better, and when he was off the floor, the Rockets were worse, so let's get him on the floor. But what can he do? Well, we don't know exactly, but let's just get him on the floor. And I think that's still a, a, a thing that's that's raging, and, and, and that is still kind of, aside from the three-pointer, I think, trying to understand, okay, but what is it is still a big project in the NBA.
1: It's also worth mentioning that um, this used to just be something that people said about players like Shane Battier or Kyle Lowry. There was something ineffable, as you said, Kevin, or, like, you know, uh, non-tangible. And now, like, these numbers are tangible. We can quantify the effect that um, that these guys have on the court, or at least the way that their teams do play when they're on the court. So it's no longer just, huh, the, the Houston Rockets seem to really play well when Shane Battier is on the court. Now you can say, you know, the Houston Rockets... Um, uh, are nine points better when Shane Bat- when Shane Battier is on the court? There are numbers and metrics now in the NBA, the same way that you know that there that there were in baseball two decades ago, that show um, the influence that these unheralded, uh, often undrafted, and usually undervalued role players and star players have on the behavior of everybody around them.
0: This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading The London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below.
2: So most of what we've talked about so far, the old math would get us there. You don't need complicated computers to tell you that 3 is more than 2 and that if you make a lot of three-pointers you're going to win basketball games. But what you're saying now is that we actually have what gets called advanced statistics that measure the impact of players like Kyle, Kyle Lowry and some of that is computer-based, right? Some of that is not stuff that the eye test can
1: can reveal to you. Yeah, I mean it's interesting when there are two things that can happen with these numbers, right? They can support what you are seeing with your eyes or they can contradict or defy it. And Both of those things are interesting to me, right? Like when you have something like Shane Battier and you sort of know what he does by watching the game, but you have these numbers that support your intuition, that's interesting. But there are also guys who you might not think have a huge value or change the way that people play, and yet you look at the numbers and they do. And some of that is noise, but when it happens season after season on team after team, that noise tends to be silenced, and you have to kind of appreciate that something is happening here. You might not be able to understand it, but they are having an effect that bears out in the numbers.
2: So let's talk about the Kevin, can I ask you to talk about the opposite case now, which is the strange case of, of Russell Westbrook, who is a player who, by most of the you know, traditional ways of measuring how awesome you are at basketball, had every reason to think of himself as as awesome, and part of what's moving about sports, of course, is that you, know, you go into a game, you go into a season, and you think of yourself as a certain kind of person, and then you get all this evidence that either supports yourself, you, or contradicts it. And then what Russell Westbrook now has this season, which has put him in a very different light from, I mean, I guess the, the analytics people might have said that he was this kind of player beforehand, but he's had this disastrous season. Can you talk me through the way Russell Westbrook might now have to change his opinion of himself after the year that he's had?
0: Right I mean he's always been this polarizing figure and you might remember the great MVP debate I believe was it 2017 Ben uh, it was it was kind of Kawhi Leonard James Harden and Russell Westbrook were sort of a, a it was a three horse race and and in many ways you know Leonard personified the, the Maybe the analytics-based view, the defense is still very important and on-off stuff matters. Um, when I say on-off, and off, I mean on the court, off the court. Um, Harden was certainly kind of an efficiency hound's choice, um, though he wasn't a good defender. And then Westbrook was sort of this, what we call the traditional box scores, right? And boy, nobody fills up a traditional box score. The little thing you saw on the paper, now you can see it digitally, which just says this person had X numbers of assists and X numbers of rebounds and points. And wow, look at all this produ- raw production, right? Right doesn't necessarily you you do have the uh, percentage he went 11 for 25 or 10 for 21 or whatever it is but but by and large it's the raw totals that really tantalize basketball has filled with these sort of wonderful little novelties as we know the triple double a triple double is a player who scores double digit points rebounds and assists and russell westbrook is the generation's embodiment of the human triple double right and that's a very impressive thing on the raw surface. And so I think, you know, Rustbrook has always been polarizing because he's not a high percentage shooter. He's never been, he's been an active defender, but one who makes bad gambles on the court. He will go for steals, which then compromise the defense if they're unsuccessful. So, um, and now obviously in his later years, he comes to Los Angeles, a team in the Lakers that loves brand name basketball. They love a guy who has those sorts of attributes and they, they traded assets to get him. They're paying him a great amount of money with the hopes that—
2: And LeBron James, I mean, LeBron James asked for him, right? Exactly. LeBron James and Anthony Davis. The, the other, you know, basketball's this aristocracy where the elite kind of have secret hand signals that allow you know, communication across teams. And LeBron and Anthony wanted him. Do you think that their view of him has changed this year on an emotional
0: level? I have no doubts it's changed. Um, and I know for certain it's changed. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I will say this about— those sorts of superstars is uh, to the extent they frustrate people who have a more, I don't know, a, a broader interest in winning and losing in numbers, uh, those guys are still very good at knowing wins and losses. And, and they have not won with Russell. He, he misses a lot of shots. And I think to your point about baseball, I, and I would be curious to hear what the most advanced analytics people who I am not would say, but I would imagine if the number one goal of a, a plate appearance in baseball is not to get an out. I mean, I think a, a number one goal of a basketball possession is not to turn the ball over or have a long missed shot that leads to a transition very
1: high percentage opportunity for the other team, and, and Westbrook produces a lot of the latter. To, to rewind back to 2017 for a second, the great MVP debate that Kevin referenced, Westbrook also had the powerful force of narrative on his side, and we see often that you know statistics... Um, Clash or support narratives. And that year, Kevin Durant had left little old small market Oklahoma City for the big bad Golden State Warriors. And Russell Westbrook was the guy who stayed and he was the one who averaged the season long triple double and carried the Oklahoma City Thunder to the playoffs. And the chances are, if you think about that season, you will think about that nightly assault on the record book that Russell Westbrook unleashed, and the fact that his partnership with Kevin Durant had collapsed, and he was the one who was seen as being loyal to the Thunder. And, you know, you can have all the numbers in the world, and uh, you can watch all the games, and yet there is something um hardwired into our brains to you know look for stories and appreciate narrative and Russell Westbrook had that on his side. Now, you know, fast forwarding to the present, the interesting thing about Westbrook now is that he is still posting numbers. You would think that like the way that we talk about him, he, you know, is the ninth guy on the bench. And I think there's also this pickup basketball sense that you have of what it might be like to
2: try to defend Russell Westbrook, right? He's He's six foot four. What is he, 220 pounds, 230 pounds? He's physically fierce. And it reminds me a little of the Obama line about Mitch McConnell when Obama was asked, why don't you just cross the aisle and have lunch with Mitch McConnell? And he said, you have lunch with Mitch McConnell. And I would not want to try to stay in front of Russell Westbrook. And you could tell me that he can't shoot and you just have to back off him. But still, the NBA player is going to have to try to to deal with that force. Um, So far, our conversation has been driven by the idea that the quants have won. And I want to see if we can push back a little against that. Ben, you mentioned one of the story ideas that we could talk about is the success of surprising role players who had not been picked up by the vast industrial complex designed to spot talent. And we have this idea now that basketball is almost as objective and rigorous a test of human qualities as exists in the world. And yet you suddenly get undrafted players like Max Struz, you mentioned a couple, who emerged through the system. What what you know, Can you tell us some of those stories and what you take from them?
1: Yeah, you, you look at any good NBA team, and because of the concentration of wealth and salary at the top of the roster, they have to get creative to find guys on the margins of the roster. And those guys tend to be Undrafted, which means that any NBA team could have had them when they were coming out of college. They tend to have bounced around the G League, the NBA's version of the minor league, for a few years. Some of them might have played in the second division of Germany, for example. And yet, then you turn on the television during the playoffs, and they are contributing to winning basketball. They are uh, hugely valuable to their teams, and they are performing way above what they are paid. And you know, for a long time. I feel like I asked NBA executives what took so long to recognize the value of the three point shot. That was to me like the great mystery of basketball. And increasingly, it's how are these guys missed? Like, more data and resources and information um, and energy are poured into identifying talent at a younger and younger age. Like, the stakes um, are super high and the incentives to get player evaluation right are incredibly strong. And yet, constantly, you have examples of guys who go overlooked, um, and get undervalued. And, um, to me, that is like one of the greater curiosities of the league. And it's fun to think about because it suggests that if talent can't be evaluated properly in professional sports where you have more metrics than anywhere on earth, like where isn't talent being, uh, evaluated properly?
0: I, um, it's just, I'm actually working on a story, um, My big feature story for the draft uh, week this year, which is in four weeks, is why is the league, after all, all the new resources and new analytics and uh, new understandings of why people succeed and fail, which Ben will delve into in his column, why are they still terrible at this? And I sat this past spring at college conference tournaments with top scouts. I have had long navel-gazing conversations with lead executives who decided that Giannis Antetokounmpo couldn't play basketball and confessing to me, you know, why they thought that. And uh, and, and as I've been telling my editors, I'm like, I, I have now been fully humbled by the project of sitting with these scouts and realizing I, everyone is screwed. Like we have, there is no proper way to evaluate basketball talent. <laughs> and I don't even think the smartest people have any idea, and I've become a little more humbled with, uh, you know, as somebody who's is, who's as uh, inclined as anyone to say, how did they miss on that person? You know, how did he possibly not recognize that talent that we see now manifest itself on the floor? Um, I've become incredibly humble about just, just how difficult it is to, you know, peer at an 18-year-old and say, oh, yes, that person at 29 can win championships, irrespective of having to travel across the country and living away from family and being handed millions of dollars a year, um, not knowing who your boss is going to be over the course of the next five years, uh, who you're going to be playing with, what your body's going to do um, and how you'll respond to trends that we haven't even recognized yet are vital to the game. Um, You know, I, I always joke like had you gone back in 2012 to all the front offices on the week before the draft and say, okay, 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 the big thing in 10 years is going to be you want a person who can guard guards and centers. That's that's vital. In fact, you can't even stay on the floor in a fourth quarter of a big game if you can't do that. How many of the draft boards, when I say draft board, I mean sort of how they order the players in terms of usefulness in the incoming draft would have changed just right then or that. And I'm fairly certain Draymond Green would not have gone in the second round. I'm pretty sure he would have been a top 10 pick if I told – front offices that that was the preeminent skill teams are going to be looking for to succeed in high stakes playoff games.
2: So part of what we're talking about is the difficulty of, of predicting the future. I feel like another element of it is the fact that basketball is a social hierarchy and that social hierarchy does not function purely according to the data, but the hierarchy enables and disenables a lot of human behavior. The, the kind of... So the... I don't want to talk much about this, but the most dispiriting moment for me in my very, very brief and pathetic basketball career, where I was playing in the second division in Germany, was a practice where we started running wind sprints. We were doing intervals, 20 meters, 40 meters, 60 meters, and we we started running a 100-meter dash. And I realized that I was the slowest of the non-bigs on the team, that basically everybody who was either shorter than me or as skinny as me would just fly past me on the 100 meters. Now, obviously, you know that the 100-meter dash, even though it's measurable, is not a skill that is particularly necessary to winning at basketball. But there was a kid on the club. He was about 19 years old. His name was Radislav Tomasevich, I think. He was six foot. He was not particularly fast. He may have been able to touch the rim. Um, He was not a knockdown shooter. He was one of these guys who makes half of them in practice and 40% in the games. And while I was pining away on the bench and getting no action at all, he was scoring 30 a game for us, and he just didn't care. He just didn't care that he was going to miss every other shot. He didn't care that the guys he was going up against were bigger than he was. And so there was this psychological element that was very hard for the data to quantify. I want to come back to that in a second, but before we do, and we're we're running out of time, Kevin, I want you... So we've talked a lot about the three-point shot, and yet the exponent of the beautiful game, the Golden State Warriors, do not actually take that many three-pointers. Can you tell me a little bit about the Golden State Warriors and why what's happening to them in the playoffs? They're on the verge of making it to the finals again is an interesting story for the outsider.
0: I mean, I love the Warriors as a story dating back to 2014 when they really hit their stride because they, they are an analytic story in the sense that they are zagging as other teams zig. Um, I, I think basketball in this era will be marked by sort of a—and a, a, I don't want to get too technical here—but sort of the high pick-and-roll game where a very dynamic player who's a ball handler and a scorer sort of dribbles the ball at the top of the court, uh, selects a one-on-one matchup that is favorable to him, and then just we play it out. Um, Usually with all the other three-point shooters, and three-point revolution has very much, I I, I think, informed this because what this player does is he then, what we call, break down, he penetrates into the lane, all the defenders converge on him, and then he he can either score, draw a foul, or shoot it to the three-point, or or pass it to a three-point shooter. Um, The Warriors have decided early on they were not going to play this way. Uh, Steve Kerr and, and, and Draymond Green in particular sort of subscribe to this ethos that this is not why we got into this business, that basketball is actually not just a game to be won, um, but it is part of an evolutionary process to advance the game itself as an artistic endeavor. It's this positivist, positivist experiment to sort of just advance the game as, as as sort of a complex organism. and And that means an egalitarian brand of basketball where every player on the floor touches the ball on the offensive end, where you actually, you you, you cerebrally wait for your defensive opponent to make a commitment and then you exploit that commitment um by countering and 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 that's not a that's not specifically choreographed it's something that you through repetition you just sort of you 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 absorb kind of knowing what the next in the right play is And, and Draymond Green is very much a manifestation of this and Steve Kerr is very much a manifestation of this and 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 you know I was talking with some people who worked with Kerr over the years and there was a famous Conference final series against the Houston Rockets in 2018. The Warriors and their egalitarian play against the Rockets and James Harden. The classic cynical, I'm going to dribble, try to find your worst defender and attack him. And we're going to do this 80 times. And I talked to some Warriors folks right after they'd gotten out of their film session after reviewing the contents of the first two games of this series. And I said, well, what was the film session like? And they were like, it was disgusting. It's an affront to the game of basketball. And they've been professed to tell me that, you know, in many ways, the series wasn't about just getting back to the finals for the Warriors. It was about exonerating a certain brand of basketball against these kind of barbaric trends that have infected the league, ironically by the three-point shot in many ways. But what I love about Kerr and Draymond, and and, and Steph Curry certainly subscribes to this too. It'd be very easy for Steph Curry to say, hey, I'm the best shooter on the floor. Give me the ball and I'm just going to go one-on-one, but that's not how he generates his, his shots. Um, but, but Kerr in this respect is very much like you know, Pep uh, Guardiola of a man's city, or even a better uh, a better parallel for, for LRB would be maybe sort of Arsene Wenger, the, the old Arsenal coach who would, would bemoan anti-football tactics by Manchester United, right? Just this barb- sort of this very cynical, ugly style of play. And the Warriors have been able to maintain their, their prominence While also insisting we are going to play this much more aesthetically pleasing basketball predicated upon sharing the ball and passing and sometimes it gets them into troubles it's kind of a beautiful piece of 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 poetic irony that the that the greatest strength of the warriors is their style but the weakness is that the style encourages passing which creates larger margins for error for turning the ball over and giving your opponent a free look but that's sort of who the warriors are and 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 again they don't shoot more threes in fact um they've been outshot by three-point attempts by their opponents in this series who look a little bit like that, those old Houston teams, um, where you spread out these shooters on the floor, give it to one dynamic player, and let him either make a player or hit a shooter with the pass. Uh, but they still, obviously, Curry is synonymous with the three-point shot, but but actually, they do as much to leverage the attention he gets to find shots from two-point range and beneath the basket that are very advantageous, too.
2: Are you, are you rooting for them to win, or are you like a, a political correspondent that you can't have an actual party?
0: I'm going to be honest. Like, I used to— cop that i'm rooting for them to win i agree with i think it is a a, a, i think Warriors' success is important to the evolution of the game um they're also a good media team as ben will tell you like they're very nice to the media
1: They're they're delightful they're delightful and and they're also magical to watch i mean you know i i used to ask um people like a few years ago you know you would hear often you know, basketball is cyclical. Everything is a trend. It'll cycle back. Like, the three-pointer is not going to change the game forever. And I think that way of thinking has kind of died out because, you know, it is just math. Like, three-pointers are worth more than two-pointers. And if if a team is uh, taking and making a whole bunch more threes, you can't really uh, catch up to them by taking twos. And, you know, to me, the two incredible ironies of the Warriors of all teams being engaged in the battle for the soul of the game. Um, The first is that they are built around Steph Curry, right? And as Kevin pointed out, um, if there were any team that wanted to play unlike the Warriors, it would be the team with Steph Curry. And um, to me, uh, he uh, is this... You know, he is a revolutionary figure in the history of basketball, and he is a two-time most valuable player. He has been paid billions of dollars at this point, I feel like, to play basketball. And it's almost as if he is still somewhat undervalued by the general public. I mean, I think he's like the most influential player, maybe in the history of the game, certainly, you know, in the last few decades. You know, the second great irony is that um, as basketball has evolved, especially over the past decade, teams have realized that they want to be taking... Shots as close to the basket or as far away from the basket as possible, right? They want layups and dunks and they want three-pointers. Those are the most efficient, most valuable shots. And one of the things that has powered the Warriors, especially, you know, since they signed Kevin Durant and warped basketball um, in 2016, but even now... They have taken advantage of the mid-range, the, the the part of the court that was supposed to be you know, swimming with piranhas, like it was infested. You did not want to spend any time there. And yet what happens when you have Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and teams are selling out to stop them from shooting threes or from getting to the basket is that they have to give up some part of the court. And it turns out if you are shooting from 16 to 24 feet and you can make 50% of those two-pointers... Those are still pretty good shots, and so the Warriors are um, are are so great that they have turned the most inefficient shot in basketball into efficient for them. And so, like it, it, that, to me is like this great marriage um, of I think what what Kevin and I both love about basketball, which is you have ironies and statistical absurdities and narratives, and like guys at the top of their craft, at the peak of their power, always looking for the next edge, and it's it's sort of fascinating to watch this and witness it in real time, and then get to write about it afterwards.
2: Yeah, I think that you put that very well. One of the things I find incredibly exciting about what we've been talking about in, in relation to basketball is, as we said at the beginning, you have this controlled experiment that decides who wins and who loses, who succeeds and fails. And we have all this data now to help us try to figure out what happened, and yet there's an element of it that still remains mysterious. And without that element, I don't think we'd care as much if it were just sort of a computer game playing its way out. So I'm gonna leave you with a final question for both of you. I once got in an argument with my brother about whether in ten years time AI computing would be able to predict with let's say 90% accuracy after watching one quarter of a game who was going to win. And you can change the parameters depending on how you want to to get at the core of the question, which is that our brains bigger than ours, going to be able to figure figure out this mystery. I was adamant that I thought they would not be able to do that because there was too much in human nature that could not be quantified. Where do you guys come down on that question?
0: Yeah, I'm a humanist. I'm with you. I don't think... I think there will be... I, I think there could be emotional and human inefficiencies that, that sort of account for, for that margin of error we won't ever really be able to figure out. Like, I, I, I'm with you. I I think you know, the thing that the trend that I hear most from teams, like where's what's next, they say biomechanics, right? Just can we actually sort of break down a shot with those cameras that Ben alluded to in in, in, in the gym and actually get somebody just by virtue of one bodily movement to become that, that 45% three point shooter. But I, I'm with you in the sense that we can do that. And and, and the, the AI will have access to watching the the nature of the stroke, but there will still always be vagaries that that aren't tangible, that aren't detectable, um, or, the, or they don't they don't detect what we think they detect. And so, I'm I'm confident. Like I think I think we will continue to advance, and that machine will get better and better. But I I don't think it'll ever reach the wall. It'll keep taking half steps to it, but I don't think it'll ever actually get to the wall.
1: Yeah, and, and in addition to biomechanics I think the one thing that Kevin and I have both heard for the past decade is that the next frontier is going to be you know hacking player psychology and trying to quantify chemistry and figure out why players act the way they do and if there are ways to predict any of this um, in the future. And I think we're going to be hearing that for a long time because I think it's really, really hard to do. I mean, you know, to me, like, I I feel like there is some, you know, hoity-toity highbrow answer here where we can talk about how the variance of the three-point shot has made everything harder to predict. Um, But it really just comes down to the fact that humans are messy and unpredictable and wonderful in that way. Like, you could never have predicted that, the Houston Rockets were going to miss 27 three-pointers in a row uh, in game 7 of uh, of their chance to beat the Golden State Warriors. You could never predict that Ben Simmons, this 6 foot 10 freak of nature, is going to pass up a dunk in a game 7 of the playoff series and run himself out of town. I mean, there are things that happen in basketball every day that boggle the mind and defy the imagination and that's what makes it so fun to watch. Right. Uh, the other thing is you can't predict trust. Like, there are players who, for whatever reason, and, and whether, honestly, it,
0: whether or not it was because of something they said on the team plane on the way over to the game, that it prompted point guard x not to pass the ball to power forward y at a given moment of the game maybe it was resentment maybe it was a lack of trust maybe cuz the last time he did it i don't care what the numbers said he botched you know receiving the ball and 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 these are ultimately big human egos with great, you know, failing points who are making decisions based on things that have nothing to do with the AI machine. Um, we, we we refer affectionately to players like Kawhi Leonard as robots. But I think ultimately, like, I mean, just the number of times after a game I've gone into a locker room, like, well, why didn't he get the ball? He's like, man, you haven't been around him the last week. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's just, I mean, it, it, they're, they're families. They're ultimately dysfunctional families disguised as sort of army platoons, and they're just not. there. They are dysfunctional families, first and foremost. So yeah, I, I, my, my answer to your initial question is emphatically, that, it, that machine has no shot.
2: I'm, I'm glad to hear. I will report back to my brother. It's been a total pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for being on the pod. And I look forward to reading what you have to say about the next two weeks of the NBA playoffs.
1: Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having
2: us. You can read Benjamin Markowitz's diary about Michael Jordan and other pieces in the LRB archive. His review of Blood in the Garden, a flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks by Chris Herring, is forthcoming, probably after the NBA finals. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran
0: Brunt.